Hello, everyone. My name is uh, Anthony, grateful recovering marijuana addict. Um, and my sobriety date is July 16th of 2020. Thank my higher power. Um, super, super grateful for being asked and being given the opportunity to share with y'all here and be recorded. Um, so I'm going to do what I always do and, and share what it was like, what happened, and thank now. Um, so starting from the beginning, um, I was raised in a very old school Portuguese household. Um, fully recognizing my privilege and, and being given everything I could possibly want and ask for. Um, I did not, the one thing that was missing throughout my childhood was emotional intelligence and emotions being shown within the household, um, as well as any sign of real kind of communication or, or coping skills with, uh, with what life obviously has to throw us. Um, the first major turning point for me, all of elementary school, I got bullied up until grade six. Um, I blacked out one day when the bully, uh, hit me and I woke up in the principal's office <laughs> being told by the principal that I had just thrown him across the schoolyard. Um, and I had absolutely zero recollection of any of that happening. So it was the first time I had that like intense, overwhelming emotion where my brain just kind of blacked it all out. Um, after that, this was at the end of grade six, I moved schools for grade seven. I'm the new kid. <laughs> first thing I did somehow was become friends with these school stoners. Um, yeah, in grade seven, they were selling pot to the high school down the street. So I began smoking when I was 12 years old. And I, it was love at first sight. Um, I used it at every opportunity that I could with them. Um, I absolutely never said no to it. But at this point, I wasn't really buying it myself. Another kind of turning point happening here in, in grade seven and eight I had my heart broken, major air quotes there for the first time, um, cried in front of the entire school, and got made fun of for crying in front of the entire school as someone who was socialized as a male. Um, so I promised myself that day that I would never cry in front of anybody ever again. And I very, very quickly learned that the easiest way to turn off all emotions aside from using drugs and alcohol was anger. Um, and anger became a very easy and dependable outlet for me to disperse all of these other emotions that I didn't want to feel and I didn't want to show other people that I was feeling. So from this point forward, grade eight and nine, I'm already buying my own supply, using pot every day. Um, and I had a serious issue with mistrust in women, so I became a womanizer um, and objectifying women and just doing as much as I can to, to have that self-instant -grat gratification, um, so to speak. Um, my story does include 
throughout high school, a lot of other drugs and college as well, uh, and alcohol, but primarily focusing on the pot. It was morning, lunch, between classes, after school, um, all night basically throughout high school I was using every minute that I could already. Um, But in my mind, it wasn't a problem. The real turning point outside of like being a super angry person, causing all kinds of pain to all the women I spoke to in my life um, was when I met my now partner um, and cheated on her within like 30 days of us being together. And she stayed with me. The relationship started turning into something serious. But the turning point in my story with pot there was she obviously right away saw that I had a serious problem with how often I was smoking. And she asked me if I could stop. And I told her that I could stop if I wanted to, but why would I want to? Um, And that was a huge turning point because I then realized, because I tried to stop for the very first time after four or five years of consecutive use, and I realized I couldn't. So at that point, halfway into my addiction, I realized I was absolutely powerless, or what I called it at the time, I was dependent on weed, but I was totally okay with that because I live in a major city, I always have a stash, I can always get a stash, like, it's not a problem being dependent on something that I always have access to. So fast forward now, in this relationship, pot is becoming a huge um, tension and strain between us. And this is where the lying and the manipulating and the hiding really started to kick into overdrive. Um, all kinds of things I would do to, to <laughs> pretend like I wasn't smoking, like I would stay up and wait for her to fall asleep and like crawl out of bed as like carefully and slowly as I could to go out and smoke. And then she would wake up, realize I'm not there, freak out just to catch me pretty much every single time. Not to mention the fact that I was obviously very angry as a person So right from the beginning of this relationship and throughout the entire time that we're together, I'm being very verbally abusive to her and very emotionally abusive with all this lying and the manipulating to the point where I, on several occasions, have made her question her own reality even till today because I would believe so strongly every word that came out of my bullshit mouth that they would as well. Um, and it got increasingly worse as the years went on. Um, the big thing there was I started to cause problems just to be able to go smoke. Like I would be itching to go smoke and nothing would have been wrong for me to be starting an argument, but I would start one knowing that I could escalate the argument far enough for me to remove myself from the situation and go smoke for the next three hours. Um, So I I did that pretty regularly. Um, And I, I brought her to the point of some serious mental health issues when it comes to 
suicide and I had a huge scare when one day I did all the shit that I do. I pushed her to the point. I basically turned my phone off. I wasn't having it. I went disappeared for three, four hours to go smoke pot and be in a different universe um, just to come back and, and find out that she's in a hospital and freak out and go to the hospital chasing after her. I see her. She's okay. The first thing I do is leave the hospital to go smoke a joint because um, that was the only thing that really mattered to me. <clears throat> um, going along through this point, there was a major shift for me in the last three years of my addiction. One night, we go out together. I'm smoking a bunch of weed, doing a bunch of coke, drinking a ton of alcohol. I blacked out. And I woke up the next morning, and she had a black eye. And she told me that I had hit her. And I have always been the guy who told myself that I ever, if I ever see a guy hitting a girl, I would put that guy in a hospital. So anyone listening can imagine what I did to myself. Um, I did the exact same thing I would do to other people to myself, except much, much worse for a much longer period of time. I absolutely hated myself. And it's sad to say that even before this point, there were many times where I was physically abusive and didn't want to admit it because it was circumstances like she would be standing in front of the door trying to stop me from smoking and I would physically pick her up and move her to be able to leave. Um, understanding now that it's very, very physically abusive and no one should ever have to go through that. But the turning point that clicked in my mind was the actual, that what happened that night and it's still something that I, I am working on and, and <laughs> making amends for till this day. Um, and I hated myself for it. The self-hate hit an all-time high. I went to CAMH for help, which is our mental health facility here in the city of Toronto. Um, our our healthcare system in Canada, the, the public one, is not the best. I went in. They didn't give me a, very much help. They set me up with a psychiatrist and addictions counselor. The psychiatrist said they can't diagnose me with any mental health disorders because they need me to stop smoking pot. And the addictions counselor said they can't help me stop smoking pot until they figure out what my mental health issues were. So, of course, I told them both to both where to go and just went on my own way and back into my addiction for the next two and a half or so years. Um, going on in this miserable existence day after day, doing the exact same behaviors and absolutely nothing changing. Um, something that happened after that as well, my partner got pregnant. A mass was 21 years old and I was like, yes, let's have a baby that'll fix everything. And she looked at me like, I am not having a child with an abusive addict. There's no chance that it's happening. Um, so we, she went to go get an abortion. And of course, she's going to get an abortion. And the only thing I care about is smoking pot. Um, still really <laughs> resent the fact that uh, myself that I was not there for that and cared more about smoking pot in that moment. Um, 
but I'm coming to terms with that, thankfully. And um, that that was a solid decision. It was the best decision, and I don't want to perpetuate the the trauma and the addiction to to my children. So I'm really really glad that that is the choice that we decided to go through. Um, continuing on my miserable existence. Um, uh, my timeline here near the end is always very, very fuzzy because I am at this point in and out of psychosis and in and out of the hospital because of psychosis. Um, and after two suicide attempts, um, I was outside one day smoking my like third joint in a row, smoking through boogers running down my face because I'd just been crying all day with so much self-hate and my parents who never ever come outside when I'm smoking my dad comes outside he looks at me he's like what's going on and in that like desperation just blurted everything out to him Um, and again super grateful and fully recognizing my privilege here he looked at me and he said whatever you need to do whatever rehab you need to call call them. We'll get you in there tomorrow. Um, So that's thankfully what happened. I was able to check myself into a private rehab here in Toronto. And my sober date is the day after I checked in because I went into that facility after consuming as much as I could get my hands on. Um, And I am so grateful that I learned so much in that rehab the very first thing that I learned is that the only thing everyone there cared about was what your DO. And as someone whose DOC was pot, I felt so invalidated for the first week or two while I was in there with all of these other addicts for other substances and alcohol. So for the first week or two, I kept overplaying the addiction that I had to other substances and drastically underplaying my addiction to marijuana. That was my problem. Um, I'm really grateful that I, through the work I did in there, came to realize that I belonged there just as much as anybody else. Pot was my DLC. It brought me to the depths of my despair, where I hated every aspect of myself and did not want to live anymore. And that was more than justifiable for me to be there to get the help that I needed. Um, Thankfully, my counselor in there also ingrained into me this concept of I'm not an alcoholic yet. Because I really thought I was going to leave this rehab and like still smoke pot maybe once in a while casually and drink and do this and that. And it's like, no, like... They really ingrained into my head that I am not able to smoke pot. And more importantly, even though I never crossed the line into alcohol addiction or other substance addictions, I always say the word, I'm not an alcoholic yet. And even if, God forbid, I never become an alcoholic, it's not worth it because one beer, two beers makes it a million times easier to pick up what I really want to pick up, and that's a joint. Um, So for me, I am clean and sober from all mind and mood-altering substances. 
and just recently put down the nicotine as well, which I am so goddamn grateful for. Um, after doing a lot of the, the work that I needed to do in the rehab, I came out, thankfully got set up with MA here locally in my city and got set up with the sponsor right away. Um, I did a 30-day program in the rehab, so that fifth week, I coming out, I had a sponsor, I was going to meetings. This was uh, back during the COVID times, and that's all I had known for meetings. Um, but if I'm being very honest, I was asleep during all of my Zoom meetings in that first month outside of the rehab. Um, but I'm really grateful. My first sponsor, one of the first things that they told me is be of service. So I picked up service positions at the meetings that I was going to online, and that helped me stay engaged throughout the meetings, which allowed me to get the recovery that I needed out of them. I went through the steps with my first sponsor up until step nine, but I was not doing them the way I needed to do them. Um, about a year and a bit into my recovery, um, I got a new sponsor and started working the steps the way I now take people through the steps. So what I like to do when I share my story is kind of go through that journey. Um, so while I was going through step one, like I mentioned in my, my share, realizing I was powerless, that was that was easy for me. I knew I was 100% dependent on pot. If I did not have pot, I was a fire-breathing dragon. The unmanageability piece was what was a little bit more difficult for me because of this fantasy of functionality that's so hard to get rid of when it comes to pot. I had no problem. My sponsor helped me break it down unmanageable internally and externally. I knew my, li <laughs> my life was fucked up internally. Pardon my French, sorry. Um, I hated myself. I did not want to live. I was a big emotional mess of things that I did not know how to handle. So internally, totally unmanageable. I could get behind that. But externally, I always thought, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm well off, I have a good job, I get paid really well, and I'm, I'm smart, and I, I get away with my ability to talk through things, and I had this fantasy, but really looking at the external pieces throughout my story, I lost several jobs because of pot, and I always blamed other reasons. Totally unmanageable. I, from the age 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, four different times, brought pot to Cuba, the Dominican, and Europe on vacation because I could not go those one week or two weeks without pot. And I was a child bringing pot over the border. That could have ended horribly wrong. Um, the list of the external factors kept going on and on when I worked through this step thoroughly, and that really helped me realize the unmanageability. When it comes to step two in the, in the higher power, I love how the, the book says that, like, it is arrogant to think that there's no power greater than myself in this universe, and I could stand behind that. Had a lot of resentment against God of the Christianity religion. I was raised Christian, 
and absolutely despised the religion through the later part of my teens and early 20s. So I came into this with so much resentment against the word God. Like the word God almost turned me away from the 12-step program. And I had so many issues with things like praying um, because I associated them with the God of Christianity. Um, Thankfully, I'm really grateful that I struggled trying to find what my higher power was for over a year and a half. I kept trying to define what my higher power was, and I'm really grateful. The the best advice I've ever got is that I don't have to. As long as I believe that there is something greater than me, I just have to say yes to that and stop saying no. Um, When it comes to step three and actually turning it over to my higher power, I really struggled with that too because the concept of praying didn't sit right with me and I was unable to meditate because if I meditate, I fall asleep within a minute. (laughs) Um, A huge thing that I learned only when I got to step 11. So when I read step three, I associate it with step 11 is setting up step 11 for me basically explains how I turn it over. It's the action of what I need to do to turn it over. So for me, what that looks like now, I say a serenity prayer. It's the easiest one. I can memorize it. And I ask my higher power to grant me the knowledge of their will. And then I just shut up for 30 seconds and be open to accepting that knowledge and, and that power into my life. And that's it. I can do that anywhere, anytime, super easy, super quick. My very short attention span allows for that, and that's what has really helped get that spiritual experience that I needed. When it comes to step four and five, I have a really great metaphor that my therapist helped me because I'm a very visual learner when it comes to things. So the the metaphor kind of goes like this, my life in addiction was like this closet and I kept shoving all of these giant blankets in the closet. All of this crap going on in my life, I kept digging it deeper and deeper and not acknowledging it and just shoving it in there and closing the door behind it. And every time the most minor inconvenience or the most minor thing happened, that door would swing open, slap me in the face, all of the shit would fall on me which would add more things to now shove in the closet, which I would just shove back in and try to close the door. Um, So for me, step four and five is about cleaning out that closet, taking everything that I had avoided for my entire life, working through it, looking at it. So I'm looking at this, this blanket. I see it. I fold it up. I put it in the closet. I organize everything and put it away properly. So now it doesn't fall on me. Now I'm able to look at it in times like today when I share my story and share my experience, strength, and hope and not have everything feel so overwhelming because it's been dealt with. It's been organized, and now I can pick and choose when I use it to help so many other addicts in recovery. Um, When it comes to steps six and seven, 
my character defects. Um, I, <laughs> without being having to think about it, know what my character defects are. Um, what I struggled with when it comes to them are the character assets, because to me that was the important piece. Okay, I'm an angry person. Number one on the list, anger. Recognizing and learning the opposite and the character asset for that being love, and when I feel anger, act out of love instead, took a lot of work for me. And something that I had to do to really like ingrain those character assets into my brain is I, I took a picture of my defects and my assets and had them on my home screen, on my phone and all my devices for as long as I needed to, to really get those in my brain. This is how you're acting. You recognize it. This is the best next action to help relieve yourself of these character defects slowly. Maybe never, but slowly but surely, removing them little by little. <laughs> when it comes to making amends, um, I am really grateful. Early on in recovery, people told me, don't jump ahead. Don't go out and start trying to apologize to all the people in your life because my word didn't mean jack shit. I'd made countless of promises for years and years to stop, to change this, to change that. My word didn't mean anything to them. And if anyone thought I was high or accused me of doing anything within the first year or so of recovery, I can't be mad at them for that as much as I want to be because I did the actions to cause those doubts. So now having worked the steps and having had the time under my belt to genuinely make these amends was so powerful and and so lifting and just being able to see that weight also lifted off of the other person's shoulders as well really really meant a lot to me um four step 10 this was the first time i had really started to do, uh, I was, <laughs> thankfully, I like to say this, forced by my sponsor to genuinely have a strict, you do this in the morning and you do this at night. Because for me, up until this point, although I know it's very important to pray and have a, a daily practice when it comes to recovery, unable to have this, like, you got to sit down, you got to pray right now at this time. No, for me, it was just, throughout the day, that, that reaching out and that, that being openness, that was what it was for me. So step 10 was the first time I sat down and like, okay, this is, this is how, this is what I want to do for the day. I want to ask for this, um, to be able to, to, to do thy will. And then at the end of the day, okay, what did I do? And it was, uh, it was kind of funny. I, uh, <laughs> I found myself um, having to make amends to people because of the way I was treating them throughout the day. And, and it really helped put things into perspective where it's like, I don't want to have these things cause people more harm even while I'm in recovery. So having that daily practice at the end of each day and, and, and basically cleaning up that closet as she, as things start to pile up on the, on the daily is really, really important for me because don't let it pile up again and, and get so overwhelming again. Um, as I mentioned with step 11, that, that 
simple practice of daily prayer and my form of meditation, reading step 11 really helped me understand step two and three. Um, I really got stuck on the higher power thing and the, the turning it over thing. So if anyone else out there is experiencing the same thing, step 11 really, really something clicked in my brain. And then step 12, anyone can be of service at any time. Just showing up to a meeting, you are being of service. Sharing at a meeting, you are being of service. Obviously, picking up service positions, like I mentioned at the beginning, was a great way for me to stay engaged. So that's what I did my entire first year of recovery. I dug down and did as much physical service as I could at all the meetings I attended in my local district. I even created service positions because I wanted to be of more service. In the second year of my cover recovery, my sponsor thankfully encouraged me to step up. I became a part of the district and started, started doing service at a more district level on those officer positions and being able to deal with the website and deal with the outreach into the community and the rehabs and the, and the hospitals. And that was such a, a turning point for me. And then in the third year of my recovery was, which was just in the last year, like even just the last six months have been an incredible shift for me. I was a delegate for my district. So I went to MA uh, MA World Services (laughs) and I letting my higher power kind of guide me I let my name stay on the list, and higher power willing, of course, I got elected to be a part of World Services, and I have been feeling so fulfilled ever since I've done that, and, like, words can't explain how good that makes me feel to be able to help on on a greater level, because that, for me has always been something that's been important to me. But since getting sober, I know my goal in life is to create as big of a ripple effect as I possibly can. Because the more addicts I'm able to touch and help, the more they can touch and help and so forth and so forth. Um, I'm very well known within my uh, district for doing an insane amount of service. I recently... Uh, finished working the steps very, very thoroughly about six months ago and have five sponsees that I am taking through the steps. And in my kind of mental frame for this, I, I'm able to obviously make it work with my daily schedule. I'm not saying everyone has to do as much as I'm doing, but first of all, it happened little by little. And second of all, I know that I have to work twice as hard in recovery than I did while I was using. I put so much energy and effort every single minute of every day into using and now energy doubling it and putting it into recovery and that's what keeps me sober day by day one day at a time and there are no words to explain it and it's so 
baffling. I never understood the words having had a spiritual awakening. I thought that was a load of bull. I didn't understand it. I didn't think it was ever going to happen to me because I struggled with the spiritual piece for so long. And I, like, I don't know, like, I still have no word to explain it. I know I've had a spiritual awakening, and it just feels to me in every facet of my life, especially in recovery, but also outside of recovery, that I genuinely feel like my higher power is talking and working through me. And it's like, I remember I was going to the steps and my sponsor always knew what to say. And I would always think in the back of my head, as a sponsor, I'm never going to know what to say. And guess what? I don't. But I always manage to find the words to say something. And the words that come out of my mouth are always exactly what the other person needs to hear. My actions in recovery are always what needs to happen Maybe not what I want to happen, maybe not what other people want to happen, but it's what needs to happen to, for my betterment and for whoever's betterment that is happening to as well. That's my higher power's will, and I, I can see, like, feel it just oozing out of me, and there's no words to explain how empowering that feels because I had always felt so powerless. I had always despise every aspect of myself and now I can genuinely say I love so many pieces of myself and I am so proud of the work I've done and the work that I'm able to do because of being in recovery um yeah I don't know how to wrap up here but um I appreciate you all listening I appreciate the uh, the ability to come in tonight and share and with that I'll share the time